Hello and welcome to this episode of A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics and love. I am your host, Danny, and today's episode dives into the linguistics of the Bible. Dr. Benjamin Souchard joins me to discuss Biblical Hebrew, where it comes from, when it was used, why he loves it, and how human this holy language can be. My guest today is Dr. Benjamin Souchard. He's joining me from the Netherlands, and he currently holds a senior postdoc fellowship at the University of KU Leuven in Belgium. Uh, He also is a guest researcher at the University of Leiden. He has very kindly agreed to come along today and talk about one language which is very much at the heart of his research, has been since his PhD. So, how are you doing today? How are things with you, Benjamin? I'm great, thanks. How are you? All's very well with me. I am really, really looking forward to getting stuck into this language. I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but it is a historical language. And I think as regular listeners will know, or anybody who knows me will know, uh, I'm a historian at heart, so I'm looking forward to getting stuck into this. So, please, Benjamin, introduce the language that you love and want to talk about today. Thank you. A language I love is Biblical Hebrew. Fantastic. Biblical Hebrew. So, We have two words here, a two-word name, and both of these words, I think, will be instantly recognizable, transparent to people, but put them together, and we have a term for a language that I think needs unpacking. We need to dig into what we mean by Biblical Hebrew. So, first things first, who spoke this language, if they ever spoke this language? Who, and if I may ask, when? Yeah, that's a good way to phrase the question, I think. Who spoke it, if anyone spoke it? I always like to be a bit annoying and say that biblical Hebrew is the language of the Hebrew Bible and pretend that that's given enough information. Uh, it's, it's strictly true, though. So the Hebrew Bible, uh, or the Old Testament, is uh, a collection of books, collection of texts, I, I should say, that have canonical status or holy status in Judaism and Christianity that were written during the course of the first millennium BCE, mainly in the Iron Age kingdom of Judah, centered on Jerusalem, and maybe partially also in the kingdom of Israel to the north, both of which today are in the state of Israel and the Palestinian territories. And after the demise of of these kingdoms, the texts continue to be written in, well, what later became Judea uh, as, as a province of different world empires. As a form of Hebrew, it's part of the Semitic language family, one of the bigger language families in the world, actually, from the Middle East and East Africa. And in this area surrounding Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, we have a number of closely related languages called the Canaanite languages. We we call them the Canaanite languages. People in antiquity called them Canaanite as well. Uh, These are things like Phoenician and uh, Moabite, Edomite, and Ammonite. And for historical reasons, we refer to the the form or the dialects that come from ancient Israel and Judah as Hebrew, not as Israelite and Judahite, which would would also make sense. So that's where Hebrew is from. Hebrew proper really starts at the beginning of the first millennium BCE. So 10th century, maybe we have some inscriptions in Hebrew. And then what becomes biblical Hebrew is really kind of arbitrary because it is the language of the texts that ended up in the Hebrew Bible for various historical reasons. So it's kind of a a mixed bag. And what might the people who were 
writing these texts, what might they have called their language? This term Hebrew, how does it fit in? Because you've just said that we have this general and perhaps more accurate term Canaanite. Why do we need this term Hebrew? Yes, so we we do have the term uh, Hebrew in Biblical Hebrew. There's an adjective Ivri. The modern Hebrew word for Hebrew is Ivrit, so that's the the feminine uh, Hebrew. In Biblical Hebrew, it isn't used as a term for the language. It's apparently a kind of ethnic designation. So people are referred to as Hebrews or say, I am a Hebrew. It's especially used as a kind of outgroup term. The Egyptians like to talk about Hebrews. People present themselves as Hebrews to other people. And in certain places, it, it seems that it's a bigger category than the Israelites or the Judahites, who are the real protagonists of the Bible. But it seems that their, their relatives uh, to the east of the River Jordan also may have counted as Hebrews. We don't see this term being used for the language, and that might be because speakers noticed that the language was shared by more people than people they recognized as being Hebrews, especially, for instance, the Phoenicians. Phoenicians lived on the coast of modern-day Lebanon, very well known for having uh, founded lots of colonies all across the Mediterranean, Carthage being the the big one, and having lots of interactions with the Greeks. So uh, the Phoenicians are are very well known to us from classical history. But Phoenician is actually what the Greeks called them. Seems that the Phoenicians themselves called themselves Canaanites. Canaanite is a term that's used in the Bible as well to refer to the Phoenicians. But we also have a few instances where the language that is being written in the Hebrew Bible is called Sifat Kanaan, the language, literally the lip uh, of Canaan. A little bit later, under the Persian Empire, there's a passage where someone complains about the local uh, Judeans having intermarried with other populations and saying that all their children spoke Ammonite or Ashdodite and, and couldn't even understand Judite. So there it's called Yehudit, apparently referring to the local dialect. And I think that's also a term that's used in a very fun passage uh, where Jerusalem is under siege. The Assyrians have come by, tried to uh, conquer the city, and they send out a guy who speaks Hebrew. uh, And he reads out this really demoralizing message, urging the city to surrender. He's speaking to like royal ministers who are standing on the wall. And they say, okay, we'll talk with you, but please speak Aramaic with us. We speak Aramaic, the international language. We know you speak Aramaic as an Assyrian official, but don't speak Yehudit, don't speak Judean, where all these people can understand you. That's another use of of Judite to refer to the language itself. Very interesting. I'm fascinated already because you're digging into the linguistics of the biblical narrative. I, I know at least the stories and I know the places that you're talking about. Uh, they're familiar to me, but I understand that these are very complicated terms and language really does not map neatly onto social group and the way that people saw themselves. I imagine somebody living in Jerusalem, which is in the kingdom of Judah, looking at somebody in living up the coast in the city of Tyre might have said, oh, we're definitely not like them. We're separate people. But the language is the same, at least at some point, because In that story, you mentioned that both groups on both sides of the wall are able to speak Aramaic, Aramaic being a separate language. Does that show that Canaanite is regressing, giving way to Aramaic in that story? Historically, that is something that happened. Over time, Aramaic became the language of the whole Near East. 
but at that point in time, and I think this story is set around 700 BCE, under the Syrian king Sennacherib, I believe, Aramaic hadn't made it that far south yet, but it had become the important language of this western part of the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrians, having conquered all these city-states that spoke Aramaic, kept using Aramaic because it was easier than teaching everyone Assyrian Akkadian. And the Assyrians being the superpower of the time, highly educated people like the royal steward would have been trained in Aramaic in order to be able to engage in international diplomacy and, and things like that. So that's why they're saying, please use Aramaic as a language that we, the elite, speak but we don't want you demoralizing uh, the common people who can hear you speaking Judite now. It's really interesting to wonder why an Assyrian uh, officer might be able to speak Hebrew that well. And there's suggestions that maybe he was an Israelite in exile or something like that. And the story continues hilariously, I think, but with him going, no, you idiots, I'm talking to them. I want the common people to understand me and surrender. Why would I uh, speak Aramaic in a situation like this? Okay, I'm with you. But I feel that we are jumping too far ahead in that these are issues relating to the decline of Hebrew in this region. So let's wind back the clock a little bit. We've mentioned a few languages already. We've mentioned a few, at least, language names. Could you tell us a little bit about the genealogy of biblical Hebrew? I'm thinking specifically in terms of the history and the prehistory of this language. Where does it come from? And how does it connect to its wider linguistic family? Please introduce the family tree of Biblical Hebrew. As I said, Biblical Hebrew, uh, Hebrew in general, is a Semitic language. And as such, it's fairly closely related to Arabic, the biggest Semitic language that's spoken today. 300 million speakers uh, all across the Middle East and North Africa today, spread far and wide with the Islamic conquests. It wasn't always that big, and it wasn't always uh, the most influential Semitic language. If we go... Further back in history, there's another Semitic language that played a very important role, and it's one I already mentioned, that's Akkadian, and that's the language of the Assyrians and the Babylonians in Mesopotamia. It seems that Semitic got to be spoken in Mesopotamia by spreading there. It's not from Mesopotamia, it's probably from further west, closer to where Hebrew was spoken, and as a result, Akkadian is its own branch, more or less. It's East Semitic, together with Eblite, the very oldest uh, attested form of Semitic, which is, is questionable whether it's its own language or what Akkadian was like before it reached Mesopotamia. And then everything else is West Semitic. And then within West Semitic, we have some kind of peripheral groups. There's modern South Arabian in modern day Yemen and uh, Oman. Very cool spoken languages with a short written history, but very important for the reconstruction of Semitic. Then there's a very big and diverse group of something like 30 different languages spoken in uh, the Horn of Africa, in Eritrea and Ethiopia. There's a classical language, Giz, uh, recorded in writing since late antiquity, very fun language. And then today there's a few big languages, Amharic, the uh, hmm, not the biggest language, but the uh, most official language, I think, of Ethiopia. Tigrinya is big in Ethiopia and in Eritrea, and uh, Tigre is fairly big. And then there's a bunch of little languages, uh, some of which have died out, some of which are dying out, others are just doing fine, mostly in, uh, well, I think all of those are in, in Ethiopia as well. And then the rest of the famous Semitic languages all belong to the same group called Central Semitic. That's where we find Arabic and Maltese, which is very close to Arabic. There's 
four languages from ancient Yemen, which we called ancient South Arabian or old South Arabian. The biggest one being Sabaic, which people might know from the Queen of Sheba. Sheba was an actual kingdom. They uh, were very rich and influential for a thousand years, and they wrote Sabaic, very uh, beautiful script. And then there's the Northwest Semitic languages. We're getting closer to Hebrew. And these are from the Levant. So Syria, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Jordan. There's some small languages there that are hard to classify, but the big groups there are Canaanite that we talked about. So Hebrew and, and Phoenician and friends, Aramaic, which we've mentioned, and a slightly older language, Ugaritic or Ugaritic from the Bronze Age, late Bronze Age city-state of Ugarit on the Syrian coast. And those are all fairly close together. I think you can compare those maybe to English and Dutch or English and German, maybe even closer. That's about the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic and, and Ugaritic. And then presumably as a principle, the further back in time you go, the fewer differences there are between these languages because they're closer to their common source, which we don't have. We should stress that everything you've mentioned, they are historically documented languages that come from a source that is not historically documented called Proto-Semitic. Um, how much has Biblical Hebrew changed from that early prehistoric proto-point? Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew has changed some things quite dramatically. Proto-Semitic is reconstructed with a case system. It's not as elaborate as the Indo-European case system, for instance, things people might know from Latin or Greek or Sanskrit, five, six, seven cases. Uh, we don't have that in Semitic. We have just three, U, E, A, U for the nominative, E for the genitive, A for the accusative. Hebrew is one of the languages that has lost that. We know that an ancestor of Hebrew probably had that quite recently uh, in the late Bronze Age. So that's right before 1000 uh, BCE. But the historical phase of Hebrew itself doesn't have cases because the endings just fell off due to a sound change. That obviously affects the way you build sentences and construct phrases uh, as well. And something similar happens to the verb. There used to be a quite involved mood tense aspect system that was marked with vowels at the end of the verb that you still have in classical Arabic. Those vowels were lost in Hebrew, and that causes the, uh, the verb system to be reorganized as well. But at the same time, other parts of the grammar as well in Hebrew can be quite archaic. There's a verbal category called the perfect, like katav, uh, he wrote, katavti, I wrote. In all of West Semitic, that's a past tense. In Proto-Semitic, this perfect probably had a stative function. So in Akkadian, you can say kabit for he is heavy, or he was heavy, or he will be heavy. Marutz for he is sick. Marzat for she is sick. In all of West Semitic, that is a change to a past tense, also in Biblical Hebrew. But Biblical Hebrew preserves this state of use as well. In Biblical Hebrew, you can use a perfect, uh, yada, for he knows, uh, not he knew, past tense. Yadati is a normal Biblical Hebrew way to say, I know. Gavadi, I am heavy, uh, with this verb form that normally has become a past tense. It can still be used as a stative. There's uh, another verb form uh, that's very short. Uh, it's inflected completely differently. From Akkadian, again, we know that it used to be a past tense, that's what used to be the past tense. It's how you expressed past events. So in Akkadian, you can say, Imkut, he fell. Amkut, I fell. In West Semitic, that's lost, or that form has different uh, uses. It's used to express commands, things like that. But Biblical Hebrew preserves it. It adds va to the beginning, and, and it becomes the normal way to express a chain of events in the past. Uh, so, and he got up early in the morning, and he sidled his 
uh, donkey and he departed and he went there. That uses a chain of uh, all these forms that preserve their past tense, preterite sense, all the way from proto-Semitic. The shape of the words has changed quite a lot, but some of the grammar is uh, among the most conservative of the attested Semitic languages. Yes, that makes sense to me. Like any language, there's going to be a mixture of archaisms, innovations. This is unsurprising from a very general point of view. But I'm very interested, how do we how do we know this? Perhaps not so much about grammar, because we can see everything that you've mentioned in our historical written sources. But say, for example, sounds. We don't have recordings of biblical Hebrew. How do we know what it sounded like? And and what's it like working with this completely historical language? Yeah, so uh, for starters, the examples I've been giving are for sure 100% not the way biblical Hebrew was pronounced when the texts were written. What I'm using is something close to a modern Hebrew pronunciation. So by virtue of being biblical Hebrew, the language has a very special status in Judaism. And once the text of the Hebrew Bible was fixed and the the exact pronunciation of every word was fixed, that pronunciation traveled with different Jewish communities across the globe, especially across uh, Western Asia and Europe, and underwent changes together with the vernaculars of the people that transmitted it. So you find slightly different pronunciations, traditional pronunciations of biblical Hebrew all across Europe, all across North Africa, all across the Middle East with some pronunciations really diverging very wildly from others. So we already have this this massive range of diversity in how Biblical Hebrew was traditionally pronounced. At Western universities, what we use most of the time is something, like I said, it's close to modern Hebrew. I'm never really sure which way that direction goes, whether uh, academics pronounce it like modern Hebrew or whether modern Hebrew was influenced by the academic pronunciation very much. It's kind of a a compromise with Central and Eastern European Jews trying to approximate a Middle Eastern pronunciation, but substituting sounds they could make for sounds they couldn't make. But if you go back in time, we can employ the same kind of reconstruction that we do with language families. And we can say, well, in Europe, this letter is pronounced as a ch. In the Middle East, it's pronounced as a ha. We know that other Semitic languages have a ha there. We know that in Greek transcriptions from antiquity, they don't write anything. We know that in Latin, it was written with an H and not with a C or a CH or anything like that. So in that case, ha is probably the older pronunciation. You can go through the whole language like that and reach a reconstruction of how it was pronounced by the time that the texts became this holy corpus, as it were. And then to go further back than that, closer to the point in time when the texts were written, we can rely a little bit on transcriptions, like I said, in Greek and Latin. And uh, if we get far enough back in history in uh, cuneiform sources, where we have things like names of Judean kings written in uh, syllabic cuneiform with vowels and everything, which is very nice, and looking at other languages. What does Aramaic have? What does Arabic have? What does Ugaritic have? What form do we reconstruct for Proto-Semitic? And at what point in time would it have changed to what we find in Hebrew? So to get back to the sounds of Biblical Hebrew, the way that it would have been pronounced at the time, is all about building a massive case from all sorts of different sources. Yeah, everything that you've mentioned here. One question that has occurred to me is, 
about the texts. So as you define the language at the very beginning, it is the language of a set body of texts that uh, make up the Hebrew Bible today. I'm just wondering about the people who wrote them. We know, or we're pretty confident, there were many authors for these texts. Because of that, do we see dialectal differences? Do we see, for example, east, west, north, south, you know, differences within the Hebrew that, that make up these texts? And also, what genre were they originally written in? Because I come to these texts through multiple languages. I come to these texts, I know them because of English and from English because of Latin and Greek and Aramaic and then getting back into Hebrew. And often we approach these texts as if they were always written in this very old-fashioned, archaic, grand language. But I imagine that probably wasn't always the case originally. I imagine in some parts, maybe the language was was quite natural. I love this question. As for, for genre and how natural it is or is not, what we have in the Hebrew Bible, all of the texts are literary texts. So a lot of thought has gone into everything. But within that category, there's, there's a, a spectrum. There's quite a lot of poetry, so the Psalms, for instance, the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, large parts of, of the prophetic books like Isaiah or Jeremiah are in poetry. And the shape of biblical Hebrew poetry is quite different from uh, English poetry, for instance. It's pretty similar to other ancient Near Eastern forms of poetry, like uh, ancient Egyptian poetry, from what I, I know of it, and Akkadian poetry. Uh, they don't have rhyme. They don't have a very strict meter, but they have very short lines and to be able to say enough, you get a lot of repetition. So the same thing gets expressed in multiple ways. And this is something you often do here in translation. The psalm uh, that goes in translation, when Israel left Egypt, the house of Jacob went from a foreign-speaking people. So it's saying the same thing twice. Then Israel became his domain. Judah became his sanctuary. So in Hebrew, that's a lot snappier. I reversed the translation. But yeah, these choppy three-beat or two-beat half verses that then get repeated so you're, you're conveying enough information. That's obviously something that poets had to think about a lot. And there's a lot of metaphors in that. There's wordplay. But large sections of the Bible are in prose. And there, uh, the distinction isn't so much, like the variation we find isn't so much a dialectal one as a diachronic one. It's less about space and it's more about time. So as for space, it has been suggested that we have different dialects, like regional dialects in Hebrew. Like I said, most of the texts of, of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible, are from the kingdom of Judah. But uh, there are some texts that focus especially on the northern kingdom, which was historically more powerful until it was conquered by the Assyrians. and one school, especially as uh, argued for the presence of Northern Hebrew in prophets that are from the North, in texts that are about the North. And uh, one scholar argues that up to 25% of the Hebrew Bible is written in this kind of Northern Hebrew. That's not the consensus, but I'm, I'm sure there's something there. But the bigger difference is between uh, different stages of the language, because we have this, this library of texts that was written maybe starting in the 12th century BCE already, up to the second century BCE. So there's a thousand years in between there. It's from today up to, I don't know, uh, Beowulf maybe, or uh, late Old English. Uh, it's a very large cross-section of the language. 
just as a kind of very short summary of the history of, of Israel and Judah, we have in the first millennium, first these two kingdoms, maybe first one kingdom and then two kingdoms, Israel and Judah in the early Iron Age. Then Israel is conquered by the Assyrians in the 8th century. Judah continues as a kingdom until the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian empire comes, destroys the kingdom of Judah, destroys the temple. And that's in the 6th century BCE until the Babylonians themselves get conquered by the Persians. A huge Achaemenid empire. You've talked about Persian uh, in an earlier episode. Uh, they also use Aramaic, by the way, but also Persian. And the temple gets rebuilt. So we have a first temple period before the Babylonian exile, first half of the first millennium, and a second temple period. And in between, we have the Babylonian exile, when large sections of the uh, Judite Judean population were in exile. They weren't in Judah. They probably switched to speaking Aramaic. And we see a difference in the texts, texts that were probably written before the exile, pre-exilic texts, texts from the first temple period, are in this kind of classical biblical Hebrew. Uh, and that is very, very close to what we find in epigraphic texts from the kingdom of Judah, which shows that this wasn't some weird holy register that people used only to write religious texts. They used the same forms when they when soldiers were uh, receiving instructions from their commanders or when they wrote uh, something detailing how a tunnel was built in year such and such. That really golden age of Hebrew literature seems to have been just close to the language as it was used by trained scribes. And then after the exile in the second temple period, we have the situation where people still are trying to write in that uh, kind of Hebrew, but themselves speak either Aramaic or an early ancestor of rabbinic Hebrew. There's, there's some disconnect between what they're speaking and, and what they're writing. And that results in this kind of mix, which is known as late biblical Hebrew. And we find that in various forms in books that were written after the exile. And there you find more Aramaic influence. You find grammar that tends towards rabbinic Hebrew already. And sometimes you can really beautifully see the difference. For instance, the book of Kings is a history of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, mostly. That was largely written before the exile. And then there's the book of Chronicles, which largely covers the same material, but was written after the exile. And often copies text from the book of Kings or Samuel, but slightly updates the language because Chronicles is in late biblical Hebrew and Samuel and Kings are in classical biblical Hebrew. So in those later stages, then you have a, maybe a bit of a tension between different forms of the language. People have perhaps a better sense of what we are reading and what we are writing is not what we're speaking every day. And then also, I presume we have more languages coming in, more languages, the Persian influence, the Aramaic influence. I believe there are books of the Hebrew Bible that were originally written in Aramaic. Is that right? Isn't Daniel something like that? That's right. That's right. The book of Daniel, half of it is in Aramaic. We, we don't have Hebrew for half of the book of Daniel probably because it was written in Aramaic and never translated. Personally, I think that the first chapter of Daniel, which we have in Hebrew, was also written in Aramaic, but translated to Hebrew rather poorly. And we have a similar situation in the book of Ezra, which is all about the building of the second temple and the return from the Babylonian exile. There too, we have some chapters in Aramaic. And like you said, late biblical Hebrew has a ton of Persian loanwords. And that really sets it apart from the classical language, which has, tends to have more Egyptian loanwords, because of course, Egypt is right next door. Also very influential. Some Akkadian loanwords as well, but uh, quite a lot of Egyptian in, uh, in Hebrew as well, biblical Hebrew. So two stages of Hebrew and with different ingredients going into these stages. Fantastic. 
let's zoom further forward in time towards the end of the biblical Hebrew period. When I say end, I really mean a time when the language behind these sources stops being spoken as a daily language. And as I think we've already alluded to, Aramaic, this really impressive lingua franca of the Middle East, uh, becomes the spoken language. Do I understand it right that that relegates Hebrew to an increasingly specialist environment? It becomes a language of, of religion. I think it's a oft-repeated claim. I'm not entirely sure whether Semiticists still think it's true or not. But Jesus, for example, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. Would have known Hebrew, would have understood it, but not as a, as a spoken language. So let's dive into that. What is the later history of biblical Hebrew? And also, what is the relationship to modern Hebrew? Can we talk about a sort of a, a language death of Hebrew in this case? Yeah, that depends on on what counts as language death. So the consensus is that Jesus, uh, for instance, would have spoken Aramaic and known Hebrew. But Jesus notably was a Galilean from the Galilee in the north of Israel. The idea is that Aramaic basically under all these world empires spreads south over time. Aramaic is from Syria. Damascus was a very important center of Aramaic. And over time, it, it spreads south. And by the beginning of the Common Era, we probably had a situation where the Galilee and and so forth, which at that point in time was where a lot of Jews lived, spoke Aramaic. But the heartland of Judea continued to use Hebrew as a spoken language. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, he might have used Aramaic as a, a language that would have been recognized there as well. But he might also have tried to use some of the local spoken uh, Hebrew. And most scholars agree, I want to say almost everyone, but there's some notable exceptions, like the professor who supervised my PhD, so I always like to uh, pay respect to that opinion. Most scholars think that Hebrew survived up until that point, uh, because at that point in time, especially after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 CE, after an unsuccessful revolt by the Jews against the Roman Empire, the temple is destroyed and Judaism undergoes a transformation and this new movement of rabbinic Judaism is formed. And as part of this consolidation process, lots and lots of traditions that had been transmitted orally get put into writing. And the earliest layer of those texts, things like the Mishnah, a very central text to rabbinic Judaism, is in a form of Hebrew known as rabbinic Hebrew or Mishnaic Hebrew. And it used to be thought that this was just the kind of learned language that uh, rabbis would use in the academy, but no one actually spoke. But for, I think, a century now, scholars have thought that at least the earliest phase of rabbinic Hebrew in the first couple of centuries CE was a spoken language. Since then, epigraphic sources have also been found that use something very close to rabbinic Hebrew for everyday communication. This is from another revolt against the Romans, the uh, Barkoziba revolt. And you can see from the kinds of changes, for instance, that affect rabbinic Hebrew, that it, it seems to have been a language that was in spoken use. At a certain point in time, though, maybe because of a renewed exile from Judea after the third revolt against the Romans didn't work out well either. Hebrew stopped to be uh, used as a spoken language, but people disagree about when exactly that happened. I saw a paper the other day that I haven't read yet that presents new evidence for Hebrew continuing to be used in Eastern Roman Palestine, so in like the 5th, 6th century, I think. By the Middle Ages, I think we can say for sure that no one was speaking Hebrew as a first language anymore, at least, but it continued to be in use as a productive language. Biblical Hebrew continued to be studied and, and used liturgically, 
people continued to write poetry in Hebrew and religious texts. And from a certain point, it also becomes a language of grammatical description of Hebrew. So we have grammars of biblical Hebrew written in medieval Hebrew. And this kind of continues the stage of rabbinic Hebrew, uh, which is already pretty different from biblical Hebrew due to a lot of Aramaic influence. In some ways, rabbinic Hebrew is a bit more like a European language or like an Indo-European language. I think some of that might be coincidence. Some of it might be because the Aramaic it was in contact with was under the Persian Empire and might have itself undergone influence from Old Persian and Indo-European language. For instance, the, the verbal system changes to a, a tense system where we have a past tense, a present tense, a future tense. That's quite different than, from uh, what used to be there. Rabbinic Hebrew has a ton of Greek loanwords. Those stay in the language. And then in the modern period, 18th, 19th century, new movements start to use Hebrew for other purposes. There's this movement called the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment. They weren't the, the first to start using Hebrew very productively again, but uh, that was a big movement for using Hebrew for secular purposes. And then together with the rise of Zionism and immigration of Jews to historical Israel, to Palestine, Hebrew was used as the only language that all Jews had in common. There was some debate over what pronunciation to use, but in the 19th century, for the first time again, then people started to use Hebrew as a native language. Children, for the first time again, grew up who only spoke Hebrew. And the kind of Hebrew that grew out of that, modern Hebrew, is different from biblical Hebrew in many ways. And it too uh, seems a bit more European in, in a lot of ways. But like I said, some of that is because it was adopted by people who spoke European languages like German or Yiddish uh, or Hungarian, things like that. But a lot of it is also this old kind of maybe due to old Persian influence via Aramaic of rabbinic Hebrew. A lot of these things that set modern Hebrew apart from biblical Hebrew were already in the language at the rabbinic Hebrew stage. So that's a really important in-between phase of rabbinic and medieval Hebrew connecting the biblical and modern phases of the language. I'm very keen now to talk about your personal connection to biblical Hebrew. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about how you came to know it. I knew already that you had what you have referred to as your dark Indo-European past when you were working with another language family, but you made the switch. You discovered for yourself the Semitic languages. And within Semitic, you now occupy this niche within the study of biblical Hebrew. And, you know, it's your bread and butter now. So uh, how? How did this come to be? What's your connection to Hebrew and Biblical Hebrew specifically? I've always been interested in languages and specifically in the history of languages, how they developed. I like evolution more generally. I might have studied biology if I uh, didn't go and study linguistics. It, it may be because uh, we moved to Holland when I was little. I, I was born in Canada, so then learned a second language and we were always speaking different languages at the same time. So language was always an important thing. I had Latin and Greek in high school, uh, which I loved. And then I found this program, which was all about Indo-European languages. So the family that Latin and Greek and English and Sanskrit and Hittite belong to, this was this sounded too good to be true, right? I can go to university and learn Gothic and, and Lithuanian and uh, more Greek. So I uh, went and did that and got trained in the, the methodology of reconstructing language families. But I, I was never really seized by any of the branches of Indo-European. None of them particularly spoke to me more than the others. 
And I, I already knew some Hebrew from Hebrew school and hanging out with modern Hebrew speakers. And I knew it's uh, it was a language I liked a lot. I think it's very beautiful. It, yeah, means a lot to me. Um, and I knew it was part of this larger family, like uh, Arabic. I didn't know anything about Aramaic at the time or, or Akkadian. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if I could apply this methodology of, of reconstructing language families to this family that looks like a perfect playground because we have all these languages that are so diverse, but also still so close together. And I went to the study advisor at the time and uh, said, well, this is what I want to do. I want to kind of do comparative Semitic linguistics. Is, is that possible? And to my great luck, uh, I, I, had a, I had a lot of luck that the, the advisor at the time was someone that you, Danny, might know from Twitter. Uh, now, Professor Martin Kosman, who uh, works on the Berber languages, distant relatives of Semitic, but also had a very thorough training in Semitic. So he was he knew exactly what to tell me. He said, okay, if you want to do comparative Semitics, here are the five classical Semitic languages that you have to learn. You have to learn Arabic, Akkadian, Aramaic, Giz, and Biblical Hebrew. So in our program, we had some space for a minor, and I just started taking introduction to Biblical Hebrew, introduction to Arabic, introduction to Akkadian, everything I can, could get, and uh, really enjoyed it, at the same time finishing my, my program in Indo-European. And then uh, in the, the master's, I was able to uh, do a program where, again, I could kind of build my own program. So I just took as much uh, historical Semitic as I could get. And based on what was on offer, that ended up being a lot of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Northwest Semitic, so Phoenician, Ugaritic. Um, and one of these courses was a class on the historical grammar of Hebrew. So here we have biblical Hebrew. How can we reconstruct all these different grammatical categories and words and things like that back to Proto-Semitic? And every week we heard, here's a sound change. Sometimes ah becomes oh, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it says ah. We don't really know when. And as a former Indo-Europeanist in training, that didn't sit right with me, uh, especially in light and maybe more than other places. We were really trained to believe in regular sound change and the neo-grammarian hypothesis for people who know what that is, that's that language change follows regular rules. And if it doesn't, in a certain case, that's because there's analogy. So a word has been changed based on another word that it shares some kind of meaning with, or maybe it's a loan word from another language or another dialect. But in other cases, you should be able to find regular rules that explain or that predict the shape of a word or of a form in a particular stage of the language. And I just, Hebrew wasn't there from what I heard. There were a lot of uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no rules. So based on on that frustration, really, as a, a lost Indo-Europeanist working on, on Semitic, I wrote a proposal to, to do a PhD on the sound laws of the biblical Hebrew vowels, which is where all the problems were. The consonants weren't such a problem, but the vowels were a mess. Because in theory, biblical Hebrew has this really weird history as this thousand-year corpus that then gets canonized and transmitted in all these weird ways, maybe it doesn't follow regular sound changes. Maybe it behaves in a different way. And um, that got funded. I got to conduct the research. And uh, I think I was able to show that, no, Biblical Hebrew does follow regular sound change. We can explain all the exceptions if we look for the right conditionings. So in that regard, Biblical Hebrew is a normal language. With those exceptions, then, what did your explanation tend to be? Was it something in the history? Was it something in the language itself? Or was it a, was, was it a mishmash? I'm, I'm just curious as to what your general overview was. Uh, how did you explain these exceptions? 
I think analogy played a large role, but I try to be a bit stricter with analogy than a lot of people who worked on this before. So it's not enough to say that this word influenced that word. You really have to show how that could have happened in the mind of a speaker and ideally explain why it would be more likely to happen in a case like that than in other words where it didn't happen. A lot of words turned out to possibly be loan words from Aramaic, for instance. And in some cases, it's just the case that you really have to look very carefully and then you find a specific environment uh, where a sound change does or doesn't happen. So maybe this change is regular, but it didn't happen if there was an ooh in the first syllable. And then suddenly it's regular. And then there's a few changes that just ended up not being one change at all, but just five different things that happened over the span of 2000 years and end up being called by one name. But uh, just repetitive, very similar sound changes happening over and over again, really making it hard to tell exactly what went on. Those are the ones I'm least sure about. Now it's time for the second of the three questions that I ask all my guests. And this one is a simple question to ask, but maybe challenging to answer, to narrow it down. What is something that you love about Biblical Hebrew? It is hard to answer because I think for most people, what they love about a language is vibes, right? You just, it clicks with you. But to name one specific thing, I think it's something that's already come out a lot in our conversation. It's the historical aspect of the language. Biblical Hebrew is is kind of like something that in Semitic languages is called a tell. You have these tells in uh, the Middle East, like uh, Tel El Amarna or Tel Mardif. These are uh, ruined city heaps, right? You might know uh, the example of Troy, for instance, from, from Anatolia. That's not called a tell, but you have these cities that just get burnt down and rebuilt and burnt down and rebuilt. And then when archaeologists come and dig it up, they find five, six, seven, eight layers of inhabitation. And Biblical Hebrew is kind of like that. We have these texts that started to be written down at the end of the Late Bronze Age. And more and more layers get added on. The earliest core of Hebrew, as we discussed, is very Semitic, is very archaic in some ways, and can tell you some really interesting things about Proto-Semitic itself. And then the language evolves in ways that tell you about the history, contacts with Egypt, with Mesopotamia, with Aramaic. Loanwords come in, and we have some really interesting Sumerian loanwords, quite a few Sumerian loanwords, some of which look so old in Hebrew that they seem to have been borrowed from Proto-Sumerian before Sumerian was written down because they have a form that's older than the dialects of Sumerian we have. So we're looking at cultural contacts between Mesopotamia and the Levant in the what is that fourth millennium BCE already. A couple of words might have been borrowed that early already. And then from that point on, it never stops. You get Akkadian loanwords. Like I said, lots of Persian comes in. In the latest texts of uh, the Hebrew Bible, some Greek words start to pop up. We probably have a word for drachma, for instance, anticipating the conquest of the Middle East by uh, Alexander's armies. And then we have this whole mishmash that then a few centuries later gets plastered over with one and the same pronunciation tradition. And then that gets fixed and exported to the different communities of the Jewish diaspora and pronounced in a hundred different ways. It's just bottled history, distilled history. Unfortunately, I have to move our conversation on to the third and final question, which, being the last question, is your chance to give us a parting point about Hebrew. What is something, in your eyes, that we should know about Biblical Hebrew? 
It's something that uh, you kind of asked about already. Biblical Hebrew, being biblical Hebrew, right, it has this exalted status and people have all kinds of ideas about it being a, a holy language. And it is, in several religions, a holy language. At the same time, linguistically speaking, originally at least, it's a real language, right? It's not a weird kind of code where the letters of a word spell out a secret meaning if you take them one by one. It's not necessarily very elevated and pious or anything. In biblical Hebrew, we have well-attested words for all kinds of rude bodily functions. We know how to curse someone out in Hebrew. In biblical Hebrew, we have biting sarcasm in biblical Hebrew. So yes, it's, it, it's a real language. Uh, besides being a holy language. I think that's a really nice point. I think you could draw all sorts of theological, religious conclusions from that, that a real language can become holy. It can happen over the course of time due to who was writing it, what was being written. But I suppose then this view that you've just mentioned, the idea that it was a real language, that must be integral to your work. You have to approach it as this was a real language. It doesn't have a special status. I am not, you know, doing comparative linguistics with the actual holy word of God. I, I presume you have to work with that as your default assumption. Yes, uh, because, well, it's just a different approach. If you find a word being used in a strange way in a certain verse, there's always a traditional explanation, often several traditional explanations, saying why, why you have a feminine pronoun here instead of a masculine pronoun. And that's valid, and that's interesting and meaningful to people that follow those religious traditions. At the same time, we can also find linguistic explanations that, in many cases, make just as good sense of uh, the same facts. They approach the same problem from different viewpoints, I think. Oh, I really like that. That's very well said. Yes, uh, both ways of approaching it get their own value from their analysis. Super. This has been wonderful. This has been such a deep dive into biblical Hebrew. I've learned a lot just sitting here listening to you. Um, if people would like to hear more from you and your work, uh, you have a website where you are a regular poster. Um, tell us, what's the name of the website and, and what do you post there? Well, that's true. Uh, first of all, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for, for having me. Yeah, I, I used to be very active on Twitter. I uh, got off that when it became X and uh, started a blog, which is Hard to find, I imagine, uh, because the name, the URL has my proto-Semitic reconstruction of my name, Benjamin. So it's bnuyaminem.wordpress.com. It's easier to look up my name and uh, find my academia page, maybe. That's where I post my research. Uh, my blog is where I post a lot of unfinished thoughts. Could be fun for some people. I uh, just got active on Blue Sky as well, which everyone can register for now, uh, where I now again have a place to post bad linguistic puns. And if people want to, to learn more about Biblical Hebrew more generally, there's lots out there, of course. Uh, Wikipedia is a good resource for Biblical Hebrew. Uh, it has a pretty good overview. There's a website I, I'm not affiliated with, but a colleague I respect a lot, uh, who's also called Benjamin, Benjamin Cantor, runs it. That's just biblicalhebrew.com. He has courses in biblical Hebrew, but he also has a really good blog with articles on everything surrounding the biblical Hebrew. So that's a nice place to look. And YouTube has lots of resources, also a lot of disinformation uh, due to these kind of ideological issues. But one channel I can recommend is called Aleph with Beth. So the Hebrew alphabet is the Aleph Bet, Aleph Beth. This is a, a lady called Beth who uh, teaches biblical Hebrew 
in just in Hebrew as well, uh, using, again, a bit of a weird pronunciation, historically kind of accurate, though. Uh, so Aleph with Beth is a nice place to see uh, someone showing pictures of little sheep and saying sheep in Hebrew a few times. And uh, there's lots of resources there as well, if you want to get started on biblical Hebrew by yourself. This has just been wonderful. This has been such a great introduction to the world of biblical Hebrew, the history, the language. So just thank you very much, Benjamin, truly. Thank you, and keep up with the good work on the podcast. Given the cultural influence of the Bible, there are all sorts of connections to English that I could choose for this episode's final fun fact. However, one fact for me stands above all the rest. Benjamin and I discussed how we have to build a big case to get back to the sounds of Biblical Hebrew. One of the reconstructed sounds of the language, lost in Hebrew since, is the lateral sound, ch. You might know this as the double L sound of Welsh, as in Welsh words like llan. In Biblical Hebrew, the sound could be found in the word bachlam, meaning spice or perfume. The sound could not be found in ancient Greek, though. So, how were the Greeks to spell and pronounce it in borrowed words? They approximated it with uls, ls, or lambda sigma. Through this borrowing and approximation of bachlam, there is a legacy of Biblical Hebrew in the English word balsamic. So, that's all for the moment. Please do rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and recommend it widely to share the linguistic love. My thanks go to my guest today, Benjamin, and also to you, dear listener, for listening. Keep well and keep loving language.